Welcome to The Mothers, a podcast that centers the voices of women from across America whose children were killed by police. I'm independent journalist Georgia Ford. Georgia Ford. And I'm Nico Georgiatis of Unicorn Riot. Unicorn Riot. During this episode, we hear from Hope Coleman. Hope Coleman. Her son, Terrence Coleman, was fatally shot by Boston police officer Garrett Boyle at his mom's apartment. In many ways, Hope's story is similar to the story that Tony Beaker mm-hmm. told us of her son in episode five of this podcast series. My son names Terrence Coleman. Terrence Coleman. He was 31. He has schizophrenic paranoia. He sat outside for almost three days on October 30th, 2016. He sells CDs and DVDs and stayed at the steps around the house. At this time, he needed it to be seen by the doctor. I called the doctor on call at the South End Clinic in Boston, Mass. The therapist said, call the ambulance and take him um, to Tufts University where he was diagnosed for schizophrenic paranoia like maybe 12 or 13 years ago. So this night where Terrence sat outside, I called for the ambulance, the police came. I said, I didn't call for the police. I called for the ambulance. My son don't need to see you all. Well, we, we'll give it a try. I said, no, he I won't. I said, no, he won't. Yeah, this unfortunately is another incredibly sad story of a mother seeking assistance for her son. And the police ended up killing him. Ended up killing him. So at this point, Hope said that she made that separation for the officers from initially speaking with her son to allow time for EMS to show up. Because again, she didn't call for the police. She called for emergency medical services. Yeah. And then she explains how the incident unfolded, how she was a witness to what happened to her son and how her family was treated afterwards. afterwards. So seven minutes or five minutes later, the, the EMS drove up. I'm double parked in front of my house. The, EM, the police truck was parked behind mine. The ambulance guy gets out and says, where's your son? At this time, my son had went in the house and the EMS, I brought him inside the house. He was down the hall sitting, sitting in his room. He asked him, Terrence, can you come out in the hallway? Quietly, my son walked out in the hallway. Meanwhile, the other EMS is by my table. I have a glass table. He's standing by the table. He's a light knife on the floor, a little small knife on the floor. And so he sees it. So I tell him where to take my son to the hospital. Which hospital? I told him to send my son. I shut the door after the EMS left. All this happened in the hallway. My hallway is small. My son's standing next to me, the two EMS standing in front of us. The door from coming into to my apartment, the hallway door was cracked a little bit. You can see the police lights flash, the blue lights. My son didn't need to see the blue lights. The EMS said, okay, you're gonna go to the doctor. My son said, no, I don't wanna go. I said, Terrence, let's just go and get checked out because you have asthma and I want you to get cold. So he said, I don't wanna go. So the EMS said, you're gonna go. Meanwhile, the EMS is walking up towards him. So my son turns and he said, you're going to go now. And he raised that voice now. That's when the two cops that was out there the, from the beginning when I called for the ambulance, the same two cops, was out on the steps, but they pushed the door open, burst the door, 
came in and knocked me and my son down. I was knocked down next to my son. I'm screaming and yelling, what part of why you shoot my son? The, the um, detective come in the hallway, got in my face and said, get out, get out. I said no over and over. What part of why you shoot my son? He said, get out, get out. I wind up in the street next to my truck screaming. I'm the only one out there screaming and the police, there's a whole street that's full of police cars. My grandbaby came up, opened up the door. She seen when my son's eyes went in the back of his head. She shut the door, went back downstairs. I'm screaming and screaming. My other granddaughter, she come upstairs, open the door, and she sees my son handcuffed. My grandson, David, he, he was downstairs in the basement when all this happened, all five of them was. I have five grandkids. He took the five-year-old, his youngest sister, and I believe he was 14, put a blanket over her and when they, when they heard the two gunshots he took a blanket and put it over his sister and covered her up and went behind the couch. My other career babies are yelling out the window. Meanwhile the police went in there and told them don't say nothing when you go outside. Don't say a word. I saw my kids coming outside the house, all five of them. And I'm yelling, where are you taking my grandbabies? And he says, tell the parents to come get them at the headquarters. I'm screaming and screaming because they're already traumatized and heard the shots. I needed my grandbabies at that point. Meanwhile, my husband's still in the basement. The two officers didn't know that he was still there. My husband told me that they said um, we did a good job. We're not worried about him no more. We did a good job. We're not worried about him no more. Finally got him out the way. Say fun twill. Say fun twill. Say fun twill. Say fun twill. You're listening to Hope Coleman. She's speaking about her son, Terrence Coleman, who was killed by an officer with the Boston Police, Boston Department. Police Department. Next, Hope talks about rushing to the hospital after Terrence was shot. How she heard from the doctors that her son was killed how authorities then told the story, and then the impacts that that traumatization had on her family. On her family. I um, went to the hospital. I rushed to the hospital. I said, my son was shot by police. Where's my son at? They told me to come in the room. I go in the room. The two doctors said, I'm sorry. He didn't make it. He was shot in the crime in Adam. I just ran out, screamed, screamed. Meanwhile, the police are in the ER, supposed to be seen because they were um, injured or whatever, saying my son was swinging the night back and forth in the hallway, which is a lie. Then that, later on that night, the commissioner gets in front of my house when I was gone to my niece's house and said, the mother's a liar. She wasn't there at all. I was there. He wasn't there. And my son didn't have a knife or anything. My son has a bag of CDs. My son has no record. Had nothing. He don't swear anything. That was my child. It took my child away from me. The year 17, my husband passed, and I said, I'm going to make sure everything that he said to me is what I'm going to repeat. Because he's, he's here with me now, him and my son. My grandbaby's traumatized. My youngest granddaughter, Taylor, she went to school, told the story. She had a walk in blood. I have twin girls. They don't even want to look at an officer. They know it. They all do the same thing. 
They all stick up for one another. The EMS stick up for one another. And the point is, stop damn lying and put yourself in my place. Speak the truth. Speak the truth. You're listening to Hope Coleman, in episode eight of the Mother's Podcast, presented by Unicorn Riot, featuring hosts myself, Georgia Ford, and Nico Georgiatis. Music in this episode by DJ Skiz, raps by MC Longshot, recording by Malcolm Wells, and post-production by Different Worlds Different Music Group. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. Hope, she lives in the south end of Boston, and... Dan Fight, a pretty incredible journalist with me at Unicorn Riot, visited Hope in her apartment. During his visit, he was able to see a lot of the art that Hope has then put her life into. He was able to see the CDs and the DVDs that her son used to sell. He was able to see basically how Hope was living and how she was remembering her son every day and how she needed to sort of channel some of this pain that she has into art. He also heard from Hope um, during this time, and Hope then talked about more of the issues of the handling of the mental crisis, and how, as we've talked about in these episodes continuously, there needs to be a different response, possibly, than the way the police then respond to a crisis. They don't come in a de-escalatory stance, and a lot of times, as we've talked about even on episode seven, Mental illness is, plays a part in one-fourth of the police killings. This is Hope talking more about that and how the system deals with deals mental, with crisis. mental crisis. And the statement of how many times they came to my address. It doesn't matter how many times. They say, oh, a dozen of times. So a dozen of times and then you call again and then your child get killed. That's not professional. That's a scary thing. If I hadn't known the statement that they made and put in the paper or what the officer said, I would never call 911. This is the fear of mental health. People are not going to want to call for help because they don't have trust in the police. And for them to make a statement of how many times, I didn't know there was a limit. It's on my conscience. I feel bad for calling. I feel bad being a mother calling for help. It's no respect. It's nothing. That's how I feel. Because they failed my son. They killed my son instead of helping my son. There's a lot of people here that has mental health issues. I wish I never called. But then I'll be a parent that's not getting help for my child. How many times you have to call for 911 and they complain about it? Oh, so we'll just kill them this time. And then on top of that, they brag about after the fact, after they killed my son. Oh, we did a good job. We ain't gonna worry about him no more. In episode five, we spoke about the regret that Tony Beeger felt after calling for help for her son and him ending up dead. In a very similar vein, we hear that same pain from hope. From hope. I never think that I'll be in a situation where I call for the ambulance and I wind up with no son. 
I regret the fact, but I was doing what a mother's supposed to do to help her child. I didn't call for the police, but they still came the first. But, you know, I'm just fighting for justice. I'm going to keep on fighting. I don't care how long it takes. Because I now, as a parent, fight for other people with mental health. When I get a chance, I go to the cemetery and visit him and his father. He should have been burying me. I'm suffering. I'm suffering because I wish I never called 911. I call that number and I have no son, but he's here in my spirit. He's telling me to keep fighting. And that's what I always will do, fight for him and everyone else that's suffering. A gun shouldn't even been involved. A taser. But I'm the witness to my son. If I wasn't there, I still wouldn't believe the police. The police. So you hear Hope speaking about fighting for justice through the pain and trying to create better policies when handling mental crisis. Sort of the same that Tony Biegert was trying to do. And she also mentions how Kim Handy Jones has really, really helped her. Yeah, I mean, when we met Hope, it was at a banquet that was put on by Kim Handy. And I just remember Hope sharing with us how much it meant to her to have this sisterhood mm -hmm. and to have this community of other mothers who, you know, while everyone's situation is different, they're all grieving the loss of their child. Yeah, um, and you could tell Hope's pain was a little bit more introverted as well. Mm -hmm. um, and even the way she spoke about the trauma that she felt from that day, the trauma that her grandkids then felt, mm -hmm. how she then felt after her husband died, and how she was sort of just now all alone trying to fight this battle herself. Yeah. But this community of grieving mothers, sisterhood, this was able to allow her to keep afloat. Right. And we've seen her multiple times now come across uh, the Twin Cities area mm -hmm. for other different marches, mm -hmm. for the Mother's March, um, for the banquets that you bring up. And it seems to me that this support group is an incredible feature in her life. Yeah. Because as we talk about and as we feature in this whole podcast series, these moms are dealing with all this trauma, all this pain, and then they're able to actually support each other and create something better out of that. Maybe it's not better, but it's something to deal with in a more positive light. Right, well, to have support, to have mm -hmm. community. And what's crazy to me is here we have Hope from Boston. You have Tony from Wisconsin. Green Bay. All these mothers from Minnesota. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter the state or the city the parallels in their stories, right? And the only way we would be able to draw these parallels um, is by having conversations with these women. And for us, going to the banquet where we met Hope and where we met a lot of the mothers, you know, we not only saw this community, but we were able to see that this is an isolated Problem. This isn't isolated to the Boston Police Department, like in Hope's case. This isn't isolated uh, to the Green Bay Police Department. This, These experiences of children being killed by police, right, in some cases responding to a mental health crisis, then the role the media plays, yeah. they feel like their child's been demonized, 
And then the lack of accountability in the criminal justice system. Um, usually, uh, the officers are not convicted. Yeah, and as was in this case. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, to me, you know, what I hope for those of you who are listening and have been following along, I hope you start to see, you know, many of um, our episodes are not based on high profile cases. True. But that you hear from the mothers who firsthandedly are having these traumatic experiences after their child is killed by police. And, and so many of them are saying the same mm. things. And so this isn't an isolated issue. This is a systemic issue. Mm. Yeah, and, and in this case, a lot of times we, we, it just continues to go back to what could be a possible alternative, you know? Um, there is a, in, in Brooklyn Center, after Dante Wright was killed by Kim Potter, um, there was a quick action to include Kobe Heisler, who was mm-hmm. also killed by Brooklyn Center Police in a couple years back, who had autism, um, to include both of them on a new sort of policy change for public safety in the city of Brooklyn Center. And that was able to, to happen pretty quickly to where they're, they're trying to get responders now that aren't the police to come to uh, medical needs. Um, and, and it seems like that's going to be possibly the way forward. If if we're going to have the system where it is, how it is, they need to change the way the 911 dispatch gives out the call to the police and not have those mental crisis calls go to the police and instead have an alternative. And as we see even on the north side of Minneapolis, they tried to get the Travis Jordan bill to go through. And from there, Again, people are trying to change some of the legislation and the policies around these police departments' reactions, but that doesn't seem like it's stopping these murders from happening. Well, especially when you think about the fact that those are all city-issued bills or ordinances. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, does that mean that each city has to have a police killing in order for them to get a bill that will prevent this from happening in their city, mm. right? Why does the cost of change continuously have to be black blood? Mm. Why can't the police department in Indianapolis look at what happened in Boston and say, oh my God, you know, let's get some legislation. Why can't on a federal level, mm-hmm. the uh, presidential office look at what happened in Boston and say, we don't want that to happen again. We want to make sure that people who are suffering with mental health issues are protected and that they get the help that they need when their loved ones call the police. Exactly. And as was mentioned by Hope, um, there seems to be maybe a quota on how many times she could even call for help. Mm -hmm. Something about you called too many times, we can't help you anymore. Or even hearing the officers say, it's good we got got rid of this person. We got him out of here. Like this, to me, yes, there's so much change that needs to happen within structure of how they respond but then also their response and how they're also treating the community how they come into the community uh, looking at the community as enemy combatants so often but yes uh, even going into how many times can you call so what is an alternative what is an alternative to 911 if you have a, a child with an issue that needs to be that needs some help 
And a lot of times, you know, these moms are, are stuck alone. And, and now she's still continuing to feel that pain from thinking it was her fault. Yeah. And as we talked about with, I know. As we talked about with Tony in, in episode five, you know, it was one of those situations where we have a mom now dealing with the loss and then also dealing with the pain inside of them that thinks it's their fault. So here we're gonna hear from uh, MC Longshot with the song called Hope Called. Episode 8 of the Mother's Podcast. You can find all of the episodes at unicornriot.ninja forward slash the mothers. And to find out more about my work as an independent journalist, head over to my website, georgiafort.com. And you can follow my work, Nico Georgiatis, at Mr. Nico G on social media and nicog.work. Audio recording and engineering by Malcolm Wells. You can find my work at stonywells.com and at Stony Wells on social media, S-T-O-N-Y-W-E-L-L-Z. What up? This is Longshot, and I provided the raps for the Mother's Podcast. You can support me and my work at mclongshot.com. Peace.
My name is Tariq Thornton. I help edit and produce along with DJ Skiz for Different Worlds Music Group. Peace. My name is DJ Skiz. I made all the beats as well as did the mixing and editing of the Mothers Podcast. You can check me out on social media at DJ Skiz, D-J-S-K-I-Z-Z, or at DJSkizBeats.com. You could also follow Unicorn Riot across social media platforms and find our work at UnicornRiot.Ninja. Unicorn Riot is a 501c3 educational nonprofit media organization dedicated to engaging and amplifying the stories of social and environmental struggles from the ground up. Support our work at UnicornRiot.Ninja slash donate. Part of the funding for this podcast is made possible by the voters of Minnesota through a grant from the Metropolitan Regional Arts Council, thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.